Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dadly Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamlet and Michael Sidgwick, here to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite Fire Fest Night One. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts. We not only review AEW Dynamite, but also Raw, SmackDown, NXT pay per views. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a round of the week complete. With a bloody good quiz, of course, on wrestling. As I said, though, joined by Hamlet Sidgwick to talk about AEW Dynamite. Michael Sidgwick, was that the best Fighter Fest night one ever? <laughs> I don't know, like last year's Fighter Fest was absolutely incredible, but newsflash, assholes, wrestling fans are great. Oh, it remains, yes, I want to caveat this every single time. It remains irresponsible, in my opinion, to do them so quickly, shows in front of fans, that is. But my God, you strip this. Dynamite down with individual parts, and you transplant those parts in front of a Daily's Place backdrop with just the dark extras at ringside. And it's nowhere near as good as this. I'm not saying it was a bad show, I thought it was a terrific show, mm. near flawless show, in fact. But the fans plugged any gaps that might have been exposed at a virtually empty Daily's. Wrestling fans are the best. Atmospheres are the best. This promotion is the best. And the best, as we will get to, God damn it, is yet to come. What just an exhilarating viewing experience. This feels like the best Dynamite of the year. And yet my memories of what was my favourite Dynamite of the year felt like it had higher highs. And yet high crowds and atmosphere and all that mm. sort of stuff for everything. Um, it is foolish to think that wrestling should ever again exist without audiences. Um, obviously, in a world where it's completely like responsible and socially ethical and all of those things aside. Um, just a magic evening. I, Wilborn, you always give me pelters for this, and you're right to do so, because one day I'll stop. I watched the majority of this live last night, and I didn't even mean to. I'll allow be... it. After that opening, uh, after Moxley walked out, if I was like, I'll just watch the first five minutes, I completely understand that. 100% exactly that right. And I had the experience of a, it was as if there was still a ratings war going on. Or I had the experience of an episodic viewer in America because 
I watched just to get the, the buzz. I was ready to go to bed and it was just coming up on one o'clock and I was like, you know, I'm going to see the fans. I want to see this pop and fireworks and all that sort of crack. And then it was Moxley first. It's like, all right, you've got me for the opener. And then they started chucking up the graphics of what was coming up next. And it was the FTW title match next. And every single, and then it was like, hang on page after this, guys. And it was like, oh God, they've got me again. It was, I was just being worked in as tuning in and staying and watching this entire wrestling show. Thanks, Matt Hardy and Christian, for making sure that I did get at least a few hours kip. But I woke up in the morning, I watched the rest of it, and I loved it just as much. Um, and even that was great, too. I was just too tired to stick with it. Um, magnificent. Such fun time. Yeah, it was a, a, a great show to watch. Obviously, like you say, magnified, uh, Sige, by the, that fan reaction. Like I say, from the moment Moxley walked out, and I thought, oh, my. these This fan reaction was so good. And I don't want to do it. Uh, we don't do comparisons, blah, blah, blah. But I was so giddy watching this show. I sat there and the thought came into my head. God, I can't wait for Monday Night Raw. As in, because that's going to have fans as well. That's the only reason. Like, and maybe some good <laughs> fallout from Money in the Bank. But yeah, it, oh my God. We, you and I talked about this off air, didn't we, Hamlet? That we realised that, you know, I came in last week saying to Sid, oh, isn't it great to have fans back? And you were like, eh, yeah, I suppose it was good. Could have been better. And this is what we were looking for, wasn't it, Hamlet? Oh, absolutely. Like, this feels like it addressed any lingering issues with last week's episode. Cedric on our preview yesterday mentioned that there might have been a sound issue or the way the fans were mic'd or whatever it was. But even then, um, the wrestling itself was a little bit lethargic. The whole thing was a little bit more lethargic than we perhaps expected. This surpassed last week's expectations of returns to fans. And brilliantly, it's funny that you mentioned Raw or SmackDown or Money in the Bank for whatever, Great, because it's really put them under pressure to meet the expectations set by this particularly excellent experience of what wrestling's supposed to be. Like, over to you, WWE. Try and, like, in the words of Shawn Michaels, like, off his tits on pills in the night is, top that, mother, you know, because I'm not sure they can. I don't, I'm certainly sure that they can. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You did so well, Texas. I'm not even going to do an accent on this podcast. That's a reward for being such a fantastic <laughs> audience. Uh, let's start, though, uh, with the uh, IWGP United States Championship, the United States Championship match between John Moxley and not Carl Anderson, bloody machine gun Carl Anderson. I was really excited about this and hoping that, as Hamlet alluded to in our preview, that Carl Anderson was going was gonna to show up and show out for this. And, I, you know, Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe I was just lost in this stupor the moment Moxley walks out. And I was like, yep, straight in the main vein of that one, please, sir. Um, and Eddie Kingston, uh, obviously Doc Gallows accompanied Carl Anderson to ringside and then Eddie Kingston was there with Moxley. And Eddie Kingston didn't waste any time. He went, well, we all know where this is going. So he got out of pipe, immediately attacked uh, Doc Gallows and they they fight off to, uh, to allow these two to just have a straight up one-on-one match, uh, which began with them just hitting each other as hard as they can with forearms in the, the middle of the ring. Um, they go to the outside um anderson gets chucked into the barricade and then there's a, a suplex battle on the ramp which uh, which anderson wins uh to, to nail moxley on the ramp anderson later on hits a, a gun stun over the ropes as they're coming back in the ring and then boots moxley back outside uh and then later on uh, anderson hits his oh picture perfect spine buster for a two count there's there's just a shed load of counters in here uh which concludes with anderson hitting an air raid crash for a two count Moxley goes to the paradigm shift, but Anderson shrugs it off, uh, gets out of it. He even gets out, or even just effectively no cells, uh, a discus forearm, gun stun, but they're both just so beaten down that there's no cover happening there. 
Moxley fights back. He uh, fires up. He's just nailing clotheslines in the corner. Uh, Anderson catches him uh, with a fireman carry, gets that, turns it into a gun stun for a, for a great two count. And the finish sees uh, Anderson going for a top rope gun stun. Instead, Moxley counters. Uh, Lariat, paradigm shift. One, two, three. Michael Sidgwick, what an opener. Yeah, this is quality, elevated by the fact that John Moxley is a living day folk hero. It's ridiculous. He's a myth of a man. He was received as something probably beyond that. He was a god to this Texas crowd. They went banana for him and everything he did, which elevated the match, in my opinion, because for a while they didn't quite go crazy for everything Carl Anderson did. Part of the issue of not being as relevant as you were in 2012, which they themselves have sort of acknowledged in the build to this match, is that the gunstun is no longer like this proper over finish. And a big part of the match was he kept teasing it as this, oh, it could end at any time if he can hit the gunstun. The fans didn't get the message because they haven't seen Carl Anderson at a big spot putting people away with that move. So the atmosphere, as wild as it was at the start, dipped towards subdued territory, like as this went on a bit, but they got the crowd into it to a volume near enough what it was like at the start of the match because it was really well worked and really like hard work as well. Um, Worked in the vein of New Japan Pro Wrestling style. Mm. Uh, What I mean by that is Carl Anderson was just doing all sorts of like big power moves and taking power moves and roaring back immediately, but then doing the delayed sell. Like this is very much an IWGP US championship match and a worthy one at that. Um, Excellent for the atmosphere as much as the work, one of which elevated the other. Yeah, just a lovely, lovely hybrid. Um, I'm feeling a little bit tired of the phrase forbidden door, if I'm honest. I think it'd be nicer if we could start saying working relationship, but this is the benefit of said working relationship. It actually feels like one is in sync with the other. You've got a New Japan title on the line. You've got a match worked in the style of a New Japan. You've got Excalibur calling it the Death Rider, for example. I know the man's not in trunks and coming out to that like awesome of awesome themes, but it's not like we've got any complaints of the version that we've got of John Moxley coming out here. It did, like They played with the count out even, um, they took the piss a little bit. They were out the ring for way longer than 20, but like the, the point was there to be made that they're, they're using a 20 count to be able to smash each other's backs with a suplex on the ramp. You could not get enough of that delayed selling. Um, do you know, like this match was so good at that, it made me like pine for New Japan again. And I started to think about like, ultimately it's going to be a classic Ishii match. It's not going to be something from the current day product currently, but it did make me think, oh, I, I want some of that again. I've missed that. And I was getting like a taste of it here. And I wonder for anybody that's maybe not ever enjoyed New Japan, just how good Moxley is at potentially being a bit of a primer. Like you could follow John Moxley, defend this title when New Japan is back normal, when everything is normal. Um, you could follow him and you could absolutely draw a line between the match here on Dynamite versus something he's going to work in New Japan again, defending that title. Great, great for that working relationship. Um, I'm developing a theory that Carl Anderson's going to be a surprise entrant in this year's G1. And this was his sort of attempt to remind everybody just who he was ahead of one incredibly hardworking month where he goes old school and he goes machine gun and tries not to injure himself so he can keep like good brother in his way through this tail end of his career. And again, like everything was, like even the good stuff on the show was enhanced by the fans. 
So, sorry, even the great stuff was enhanced by the fans. So the fans were helping the very good become great. And I think that's what this opener ultimately ended as. Was this as good as Moxley versus Eugene Gatna? No. And they were in like tougher circumstances. But did it feel bigger by the end? Yes. One more thing before we move on. I think we should have a conversation. We're big on attire here. What do we think of Moxley's gear? Because in the cold light of day, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just the kind of like wet look jeans thing. Was it, were they not like leather trousers? <laughs> is that what they were? Was jeans? It? Ro- Ross is in leather pants. <laughs> so he looked a little bit like, I'm not having <laughs> Why won't you wear the trunks? Yeah. Put the trunks, put the trunks on. Like Renee likes the, the trunks, she said on Twitter once upon well, a time. She, I like the trunks. Hamster likes the trunks. She's human being, of course she likes the trunks. Yeah, I know. I just wear all the trunks. Like, I prefer the jeans over what he wore last night, but... Aye, come on. Come on, Mox, where the trunks? You've got the legs. Well, maybe he's saving them for next week because, my God, what a match we got promised after this. Uh, let's talk about both segments together, in fact, rather than doing it in chronological order because we had Lance Archer immediately just pacing back and forth after this match, arguing, and uh, Archer said he changed his focus to John Moxley. He talked about... Uh, he talked about you know their history of, of fighting over that United States Championship, and he said it's time for a rematch. How about a Texas Death Match next week? And later on in the show, he says, skimming through his notes just before the Sammy Guevara match, John Moxley responded saying, "I said this back in the day, and I stand by it. You don't beat Lance Archer; you simply survive. But I'm not the hunted; I'm the hunter. You want Texas Death Part Two? Well, next week, Archer, you're not just going to be Texas born and." Texas bread, you're going to be Texas dead, Michael Hamflet. Yeah, Taylor Sue wrestlers this, right? Because um, Jake Roberts doing the old, no, no, you can't do it, you can't do it, Lance. And then Lance is just doing it anyway. I was like, oh, all right, fair enough. And then John Moxley spoke, and I kissed my wife and children goodbye and followed him at the mouth of hell. So it's <laughs> one wrestler was absolutely amazing at selling a fight, so I watched the fight. Lance Archer, like, we've been kind about it, but like, the title's not changing hands next week. Lance Archer doesn't feel like a hugely pressing concern, but like nor does Nyla Rose and a great Britt Baker promo we're going to get to later sold me on that as well. And this is what great pro wrestling is supposed to do. Like obscure the things that maybe don't work so well about it and sell me a fight. And they have sold me a fight. I have absolute belief that on the night, I, I, I don't think Lance Archer is going to win, but I will enjoy watching him try. Something about like, I mean, something about seeing this chemistry again when they're actually fighting is going to make up for 50% of a match that I wasn't terribly interested in until John Moxley spoke again. It's very clever, this, and I'll tell you why. Do I want to see John Moxley versus Lance Archer again? Not particularly. Do I want to see Lance Archer lose another major match again? Not particularly, since the next time he does it, I'm going to believe he's got even less of a chance because this is where he's at now um, in this company. On the basis of Sammy Guevara and um, Ricky Stark's reactions, do I want to see John Moxley versus Lance Archer in Texas? I, of course I do. What a great ploy. Not only are you putting a match that is predictable, that's been done, that was kind of predictable when it was done first, and you're getting people on the hook because what you're doing is you're not being complete arseholes to your audiences. What you're doing is you're creating region-specific matches that 
will be elevated by the very region in which they're being presented. It's more for the live fans than us, but the live fans are a draw now. It's just tremendously inspired. It's a way of doing something. I've already done this, but we can withhold stuff we're going to do by another week, keep this great adventure going and just heating up something familiar. Like It's really inspired. Um. We had a, another promo as well, actually, with Andrade El Idolo being interviewed by uh, the brilliant Alex Abrahantes. Um, Andrade said he's got permission to win championships everywhere. Um, uh, and he says to, to Abrahantes, where's Death Triangle? Because he wants Abrahantes to tell them that El Idolo is looking for them. Intriguing to see where that goes next. Let's move on, though. Oh, Can sorry. I have a quick speculation on this? Yeah. It wasn't the best promo. Andrade is still somehow not jumping off the page. But two things I took from this segment. One, there is one Andrade and there are three members of Death Triangle. Two, he mentioned or alluded rather to other promotions. Mm-hmm. The third thing I want to mention, more than two, is that AEW has a working relationship with AAA. Could we see Vikingo? Or like two, or Laredo Kid, or like two like unbelievable brain melting luchadors, plus Andrade versus Death Triangle. That would be tits. Yeah, that would be tits. Yeah, exactly. It was one of those things where I, I have no idea where this is going, but I'm quite excited regardless. Um, and then we got the FTW Championship match. Brian Cage defending against the absolute piece who could just. Barely contained his excitement, as you saw, as he came out in front of this crowd, uh, Ricky Starks. And the story of this match is, yeah, Brian Cage can bloody manhandle Ricky Starks. That's what he did. He hoid him all over the place, immediately hit him with a press slam, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so later on, Starks rolls to the floor and he goes for the title. But Cage gets to him, kicks him. They try to do a spot where he tries to pull Brian Cage's shoulder into the post. But Starks uh, is reversed and his shoulder goes into the apron instead. Uh, Starks, it's, it's desperation stuff here. He uh, gets Cage in a, in a rear naked choke, but uh, Cage powers out and hits an inside-out suplex, but Starks just gets his foot on the rope to break the count. Cage uh, counters a swinging DDT, hits a thrust kick for a two count. Um, at this time, Cage is the one who gets counted. He's going for a suplex, but Starks counters it with a sit-out powerbomb for a near fall. So Starks goes to get the FTW belt, but Powerhouse Hobbs says, no, come on, we don't do that. Takes the belt off him. Cage uses this distraction, basically, to hit an F5 for a two count. And then it looks like Cage has basically got the match done and dusted when Hook, of all people, jumps up on the apron, takes the referee, and as Cage comes off the ropes or goes to hit Starks and goes into the ropes, I should say, Hobbs twats him with the belt. Team Taz betrays Brian Cage. Starks hit the, hits the spear. One, two, three. Ricky Starks is your new FTW champion. And he celebrates with Hobbs, Hook, and of course, Michael Hamlet, Taz. Yeah, great this. Just great. Um, a match of this standard was always going to be the icing on the cake because they'd done everything they needed to do but this payoff in terms of telling the story story of Brian Cage being like eliminated from Team Taz I guess the, the group turning on him as they've been teasing doing for weeks I would have been really disappointed if they'd not followed through just because it felt obvious and just because everybody could see it coming and I didn't think they did a fantastic job of <clears throat> not making Brian Cage 
feel a bit reduced and feel a bit of an idiot for not seeing this coming when everybody else very clearly could. Um, but the match was just so tremendous. Um, the fans, and Cedric noted this yesterday on the podcast about like the, re- the response that Ricky Starks was going to get. The, like, the understandable reactions didn't make this the easiest of views early on. Ricky Starks was such an overwhelming babyface that it was like almost in too much of a con- too much of a for the want of a better phrase stark contradiction to the story they were trying to tell. It was like oh his comebacks against this monster are being received as like the hero's journey and David trying to like topple Goliath rather than the fact that you kind of know that he's got those two. And by the way, like Hook and Hobbs looking like they're out of West Side Story or something like that side. I wasn't sure whether they were going to turn him or start clicking their fingers. <laughs> it's not like they just looked fantastic. Or like mechanics from a Diet Coke advert or something with the dungarees half down. Just styled perfectly. Um, but they got there. They absolutely got there. Um, like Brian Cage, and he's done this before, but it was so welcoming to uh, be prepared to cheer him for this. Like started radiating that like ultimate warrior energy that I loved so much as a kid. He's massive. Jesus Christ, look at his biceps. What's he going to do with some punk? And like, it, for, I don't know how it happened, but the crowd seemed to kind of go with that as the match wore on. And I think that was necessary to its success because early on, it was just too hard on your sleeve stuff from Ricky Stark. Because like every time he survived another pummeling, the crowd were with him. Yeah, keep away from this monster and cheat if you need to. Chop block him. You know, like, and I just, for whatever reason, when the crowd went with what we all knew was happening, everything just felt a great deal better. Really, really enjoyable. Delivery of something obvious isn't always the easiest thing to execute. And I think they executed it well. Yeah, I, it's just one of the greatest misfires you've seen on American TV because what they were going for was never going to work. They were going for something that was... They were baby-facing in the story of the match, Brian Cage, and at the same time, they were presenting Ricky Starks in a featured role in Texas, knowing he was going to get that reaction. So it was a bit of heavy cake, but I ate it. So they ate it, I ate it. I think everyone in that audience ate it. Um, it was it was a little bit of dissonance to the presentation, but like, just do things that are really hot. Just do things that are going to get a massive swell of noise when it still feels like such an absolutely electrifying novelty. I don't think they would do this in the normal course of business. Like if the Texas Loop was like four months in, I'm not sure they would have done this there, but... Who cares? Noise is absolutely fantastic. They know that this noise is absolutely fantastic. They do fantastic things to generate this noise. I think they've probably got one match better in them than this. It was still like really, really strong. Um, they never once let you forget the idea that Brian Cage is an absolute brick house. <laughs> Just the stuff with the post was great. Like, don't do that to him. Like, you have to be cleverer. And then Ricky Starks was cleverer. And then there was a bit of proper baby face kicking out with like major spots. But why not? You're in Texas. And I'll say this, that I sort of glossed over it, like, oh, he got a distraction, then he got the F5 near four. Oh, he hit that F5, and I went, oh, I guess, I guess Ricky Starks isn't winning the FTW Championship then. It was so like, I was like, well, that's that. Um, so, yeah, fantastic kick out. I, I'd love to know your thoughts on what came next, Sige, because some people have sent me this question, so I'm just going to ask it, not as me, as, as, as them, as them posing it as this. It was Cody Rhodes, he marches out, he's dressed like, Colonel Sanders, um, he is demanding, uh, well, they were recapping Malachi Black's debut from previous week, and uh, he gets on the headset and uh, he says, look, you could have just called. You don't need to kick a 62-year-old man in the face to get your point across. And he says, you know what, bollocks, this. give me a mic. Give me, give me a mic. Uh, grabs that, 
He shouts, marches down to him. He says he doesn't win every fight, but he does have a chance when he knows it's coming. He calls out Black, and there's Black on the big screen. He's got the glasses on. He's got. He's surrounded by smoke, and he, uh, uh, he, he, he tells this story basically of. Uh, a man and a horse and the horse getting old and a man realizing what he had to do, gun to the back of the head, round the back of the stables, blah, 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 that sort of thing, basically. Um, and he said when he looked at both Cody and Arn uh, last week, he, that's what he saw. It just wasn't there in their eyes. Um, Cody says, get down here, basically. Let's have a fight. The lights go out. We all know what's coming. Malachi Black is, is in the ring. He's there. They brawl. The ring fills up with all of the officials, referees, everyone to just keep them apart. There's this massive let them fight chances. All this is going on. Um, what did you make of this, Sige? And some people said, wait a second. So Malachi Black can teleport now. Isn't there an argument here that Malachi Black probably knew that Cody was going to say it wasn't like they interacted, was he? he just appeared, told the story and then the lights went out effectively. This segment felt like it was written for me, and I adored it on that basis. I'm going to labour on a point that I usually do every single Tuesday. I'm going to do it on a Thursday instead. Impromptu matches, rubbish, scripted, volleying, patter segments on WWE television for 20 years have sucked because on a fundamental level, on a technical writing level, WWE Raw and WWE SmackDown are the most poorly written shows of all time. I've said this time and time and again. What they did here was threaten the idea that Cody wanted to fight right here, right now, with the idea that he apologised for interrupting what was a broadcast. Things were planned. Time has been very carefully apportioned to make this show a thing, to make wrestlers do... Um, I make wrestlers pursue championships, all the rest of it. This feels like a broadcast. It feels like... A captured broadcast at its best does this show. Cody did this promo with the idea, right, I don't want to disturb this, I don't. We've kicked on Anderson in the face, and I can't have that. I can't. Cody's fire was unreal here. The only bad thing about this, and if I'm being generous, maybe there's a callback between the Road to Double or Nothing 2019, because Cody was saying very similar things about Dustin. Maybe there's a bit of synergy there. Maybe that's generous. Maybe it's kind of like a cliched pro wrestling thing. I bought it on that basis regardless. As much as the promo was a bit muted in terms of volume and a little bit unwieldy in terms of the content, I cannot like at this moment in time, unless they take it too far, the presentation of this Malachi Black character. The transition from, I was hoping you were going to say that, boom, lights go out, he's in the ring. That's magic not actual magic, a theatrical flourish of getting someone over who can get you at any time. I really love the premise of this feud. I love the direction it's taken. The idea that Alistair Black wants a scalp, but uh, this one, I don't even think you're worth my time sort of thing. Not only is he going for one of the biggest dogs in the yard, but he thinks himself better. I genuinely thought this was great. It felt hot. It felt transgressive. It felt like every single person in the building wanted to see that match. Like, I don't think it was a strictly teleport thing. I would, maybe I'm biased in saying that. I think this was just pro wrestling theatre as opposed to pro wrestling bollocks. I think as well, like, and I kind of understand this take when people disagree with us. 
you do forgive stuff if something's hot or if you just enjoy it. And this was a hugely enjoyable segment. Regard, I, I, I'll be honest, I switched off a little bit when Alistair Black was talking. And it wasn't until I rewatched a bit of it this morning that, same as Cedric says, there was comparisons to be drawn between putting down the horse and, you know, Dustin Rhodes and all that sort of stuff. Um, like, because it's, it's Alistair Black nonsense. I thought this is... Is, he's going to be in the ring in a minute. We're going to have like a brawl. Let's see how this goes. And, the, and that was like white hot. That was absolutely brilliant. And there was like loads of other details I really enjoyed. Um, it is like the teleport thing is a bit tricky because it's like, well, let's pretend he's pre-recorded this and he's left a gap to say, I was hoping he would say that. Like that's, you know, you have to sort of stretch it a little bit and like, oh, there was uh, some smoke billowing in the background. Does that mean his next feud is going to be with the smoke monster from Lost because he foreshadows stuff? You know, this is, but like, I really appreciated both Excalibur and um, Cody both saying, Tommy End, Malachi Black, they're trying to draw the line between this psychopath that's arrived in AEW versus the guy they knew before. They're like, they want to pull the real Tommy End out. It's like, I'm scared to make this comparison, but there's a Bray Wyatt fiend energy to this when that was good. As if like Malachi Black is this confused and deranged psychopath that is emerged from his WWE experience and the guy they once enjoyed the company of on the independent scene. Like, they weren't named, they weren't saying Tommy End over and over again by accident. Tommy End Malachi Black. Tommy End Malachi Black. You were getting that loads and loads and loads. I also loved, because this is AW, and Cedric spotted this once brilliantly with MJF and Chris Jericho. Sting saying the words, you do not kick a 62 man, 62-year-old man in the face, because who else is 62 years old? Sting, goth stuff. There's Malachi <laughs> Black's next feud lined up, like a natural, proper. WrestleMania dream match graphic that people have almost certainly already made. Sting versus Alistair Black because they both switched the lights off. Like AW Bucket, and it'll be class. It'll be really, really fun. So there's that like like that seed planted. And you, if you book a pull apart and it's hot, then it means people want to see that match. So in two weeks, they've established a really hot potential pay per view or one of these pay per view adjacent dynamite matches. So great, win, 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 win. Everywhere you look, tremendous. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Right, before we get to Hangman Page responding to Kenny Omega, very quickly we should mention that Tully Blanchard was, was being interviewed backstage uh, about attacking Conan the previous week. But there is Brad Pavel, Santana and Ortiz. He's all on his own. He's isolated. And they look like they are going to murder him with a crowbar. But in the end, they just effectively show that, yeah, without your boys backing you up, you're not so brave, are you? I sense that this is going to be responded to in due course. And, oh, God forbid, you lay your hands on Tully Blanchard and FTR find out about it. Sweet Jesus. But I want to get to Hangman Page. And I sense so does one Michael Sidgwick. Uh, so Tony Schiavone introduces him. Um, he talks about the fact that Omega versus Page is what fans want to see. Uh, Page said he always wanted to be world champion. He came close. He failed. But the Dark Order are right. He still needs that championship. And he goes to challenge Kenny Omega for the world title. And Don Callis, the house that he is, gets on the mic and goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Pump the brakes here, son. Uh, he comes out. All of, all of the elite are there. Where... The young books go shopping. I, I sort of want to know and don't want to know. Sid <laughs> <laughs> just show, showcasing his lovely floral shirt in a month all this. Um, so, uh, so Callis says, Oh, you're doing a lot of talking. Um, look, Paige, Paige, you, you're not the guy. Matt Jackson gets in the ring basically. Uh, and he says, Do you remember us? You're we're the best friends that, that you abandoned. And uh, Paige gets in his face. And only Matt Jackson can pull off the phrase. P.U. He says, P.U. I can still smell the alcohol in your breath. You're a sad, lonely drunk. You've got no one to blame but yourself. You're going to be the next wrestling tragedy. Uh, so Paige starts fighting with Matt Jackson. The elite go to jump in and uh, he knocks a few of them off the apron. Omega, conspicuous by his absence, has uh, sneaked around the back. He's ready and waiting. He's got that AW World Championship. As soon as Page turns around, he's going to get laid out with it. But out come the friends of Hangman Page, the Dark Order. They, they make sure that that doesn't happen. They even the numbers game. Page says he's not leaving without a match. And Omega agrees, but he opts the ante. He says a five-on-five five elimination match. It'll be the elite versus the Dark Order. And Paige says, all right, when I win, though, I want a world title shot. And I want my friends, the Dark Order, to get a shot at those tag titles. Cowboy chants are deafening at this point. Omega's trying to get him to shut up. And uh, he gets into the ring, gets into Paige's face and says, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll entertain your idea. I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. But I've got a counter offer for you. If you and the Dark Order lose... You can't challenge me. And there's a big thing here. I, I apologize. I haven't written it down verbatim. But the emphasis is on the word fail. He emphasizes that Pages has failed in the past and will fail again in front of his friends and his fans. And he's going to take an extra measure of player, Omega says, when Cowboy turns into belt collector chanted by the fans. And he says, if Page, you're cool with that, I am too. And Page says... The Dark Order don't back down for a fight. You are on. My word, Michael Sidgwick. What what did you make of this segment? And, and well, I already know, having seen your Twitter explode, what you make of what's to come. My God, I think I'm going to need half an hour to talk about this. And I think I'm on half an hour for the goddamn match when it comes. Like, this segment was so brilliant for so many tiny different reasons that have planted so many different amazing spots in this potential Survivor Series match alongside two years' worth of them. This segment went on for ages. 
there was an uh, interview and interruption, various people cutting promos, a brawl, then another verbal segment. It went on for ages and fans were on the hook for literally all of it. When people talk about long-term storytelling, the daily transcended, like they absolutely transcended. We are in July, 2021, right? February, 2020 wasn't the start of this storyline, but it was the month where the real tension between Matt Jackson and Hangman Page was really strongly emphasized. If you remember the revolution match and how can you not, Matt Jackson, Hangman Page were working kind of a grudge match around Nick Jackson and Kenny Omega, who were still like on really friendly terms, their sort of sportsman-like contest. It obviously completely mutated into this war because of all the emotionally charged elements to it. But they've remembered that because they remember everything and they trust you to remember everything. So Matt Jackson being the one to go face-to-face with Hangman Page, uh, Hangman Page was great. That You're the Next Wrestling Tragedy line was great because it never felt exploitative or grabby because it was so non-specific. You know what he's talking about, but he didn't ask you to think less of someone you like in saying it, if that makes sense. So that was great. The brawl and how it was measured and how it was broken up was absolutely fantastic. Kenny Omega is just incredible at this. He's just great. Don Callis, I think, if you notice, John, uh, Don Callis whispered something in his ear. Did Don Callis say, you should say you're going to be the ball collector and get a chant going? Because Kenny Omega went, yeah, that sounds cool. And then he did it. And he did it, as Hanfler pointed out to me this morning, he did it so it would die on purpose and how it would contrast against everything else that was hot. Sorry, Hanfler, but I was just uh, feeling my point there. And this goddamn match, me and Hanfler fantasy booked it for half an hour. And then I said, no, thanks, <laughs> Hanfler. Those spots are absolutely fantastic, but they're going to do it 10 times better. <laughs> this should go half an hour. This absolutely should go half an hour. If you're building the big page versus Omega confrontation, right, this should go 25 minutes at a minimum. Young Bucks, Evelyn and Grace, and they had a match on Dynamite last year that was really forgettable, so far below their usual standards. Their usual standards across PWG and so many Canadian indies are unbelievable. You're going to get the big showdown that everyone wants and not anywhere near enough of it for anyone's liking between Omega and Page at the end of this match. And it's going to be built towards by some of the most brain-melting, crazy Young Bucks action because they're two of their best opponents. Then you've got Silver, potentially. Uh, it's just going to be absolutely amazing. This is ultimately everything I like this company for expressed in one segment. The Young Bucks in that match when it happens. Look at how well booked they've been. Look at how few losses they've taken. Every single near fall is going to be enriched by two years worth of incredibly careful storytelling where they don't just lose matches for the sake of it. They feel invincible or virtually invincible. Every near fall, that's going to be incredible. So that's great. The definitive wins and wins mattering philosophy has made this incredible. The slow burn details, rich storytelling has made all this incredible. And the stable-based narrative approach that they employ is going to make this incredible because this incredible TV match is going to inform the biggest pay-per-view match of the year. All of this is seven-star storytelling. 
it's the reason why in the preview yesterday when he said what do you think hangman page is going to say neither of us were prepared to fantasy book anything anymore because we're not on their level because we didn't have five on five elimination double stakes multiple combination dark order elite matches in our heads when when the graphics said hangman page will speak like the escalation from where we started to where we got to over the course of one segment that suddenly makes all the goddamn sense in the world the second it's happened that's what's always so brilliant about specifically uh, Omega and Page in this case, but with so many other AW storyline developments, it's only after the fact that you almost furious with yourself that you didn't think of it, but then you can't because they are operating on a higher level to us, as they should be, as should all the wrestling that we watch. We can analyse this, we can talk about this, we can be fans about this, but ultimately this should be in front of you. The wrestling show should be in front of you, not 50 steps behind like they are on a Monday or 49 on a Friday. Like it's This is, this is what you should set the bar to. Um, and then when AEW doesn't even hit it, expect better. You know, like that's what's so great about this program. Um, as Cedric sort of noted at the end there, uh, to set up something so exhilarating that itself exists to set up other things. You know, like when when they kind of first started talking about the match, we've talked about in podcasts about how um, maybe Hangman Page needs to stumble one more time. And I started thinking this is a perfect way for him to stumble. You know, you lose an elimination tag match. There's almost an element of protecting the stumble, you know? He stumbled with his friends. He's at least shown confidence in the moment and he's just fallen short. But then it would result in the Dark Order not getting their tag match, you know? And that's almost too heartbreaking. And you don't want to you don't want to rob people of Hangman Page versus Kenny Omega when you were peaking Hangman Page at exactly the right time. So the euphoria of the elite winning... Uh, sorry, the, the Dark Order winning and the Elite having no choice but to defend their titles is such a brilliant event for a television show. You know, like the, the promise of matches to come is such an amazing thing to have on a television show. I've got friggin' Evil Uno pinning Kenny Omega to get his title shot and eliminating him. I've got that little tease. It's going to be nothing more than a few exchanged punches between Hangman Page and Kenny Omega. And Hangman Page finally willing up the confidence to go for the book shot and going for it and getting super kicked out of the air by both Young Bucks as they throw themselves in front of Kenny Omega. Spot after spot after spot that can work in this match, you know. Um, the Grayson and Uno and Young Bucks interactions to set up that tag match. Alan Angels getting the competitive better of Kenny Omega over a five-minute sequence. Yeah, like, it's just limitless the stuff that you can do with this. And I, I tweeted words to this effect yesterday. This is the fucking Dark Order versus the Elite. The roots of this exist at those goddamn missed punches on Dustin Rhodes' head by a creeper, you know. Like... Trust this process, trust this wrestling show, trust them to fix the little things they've broken because the big picture is the one they're looking at that they've always been able to see that we never could. You know, that's why you get threads. That's why you get being the elites from two years ago that like drop little breadcrumbs about things that are going to happen that are only happening now that they've held on to in the middle of a pandemic. That was the one thing they didn't foresee. Everything else, they've had an eye on this. And whatever the different turns and whatever the different forks in the roads that have occurred, they've never lost sight of stuff like this. And, you know, it would have never been this because the Dark Order would have been a heel group under Mr. Brody Lee. So this in itself represents a pivot. But what a wonderful pivot because the centre is so strong. The centre is Kenny Omega and Hangman Page. And the little changes you can make along the way only improve upon that. One thing, if there's a tiny wrestling-y plot hole to this, it's that Hangman Page has earned the right to do this match. And there's a little bit of suboptimal Kenny Omega's exercising his power as an EVP, which I don't want to see in AEW in general. However, however, the fact that he realises, oh, if I take this, then my mates, my support system, they can have a title match as well. Just, that's the man healed. 
and that's the man who was resisting the Dark Order for all those months because they didn't feel worthy of their friendship, like reflecting it back to them in like the nicest possible way. Like it's seven star, a seven star pro wrestling story. Just like one more thing I wanted to mention about this as well, because sometimes I think it's worth um, reminding people and like Sidgwick does this better than me because he's not as blind to WWE's failings as I am sometimes, but like it's always worth reminding people of the difference, right? Capital T, capital D, the difference, right? You got Kenny Omega and Hangman Page kind of negotiating terms, I guess, of this match that is being magicked out of thin air in the company that theoretically books match based on rankings. And there's Tony Khan as a named figure, but not as a visible one, booking matches, you know, for week after week after week. But they're, they're raising the stakes. This is hubristic. That's what this is. Like, Kenny Omega's got hubris. Hangman Page has got confidence. And the two of these things are colliding. And they're saying, it's like, can you top this? And it's like, I want this. Well, okay, but if you want this, you're going to have to do this. Well, okay, well, if you're going to do this, you're going to get this. You know what didn't happen is an authority figure came on the stage and was like, whoa, 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 children. If you want this match, you can have it in two weeks. Uh, But if this team wins, then he's going to do that. And if this team wins, he's going to do that. Now get the hell out of my ring. It wasn't any of that. It was these effectively these two leaders showing a bit of, again, confidence, whether it be false or otherwise, hubris, whether it be false or otherwise, raising the stakes and raising the stakes because they were just teasing each other enough to the edge without needing mom or dad to come out and rubber stamp it. That's the difference. That is that none of this felt artificial. None of this felt forced. None of this felt like kids in the playground having the, 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 like having the fight broken up. Magic. Yeah, adored this. All I can think of then as we were talking about it is, God, I feel so sorry for Mrs. Sidgwick, Mrs. Hamlet and Mrs. Wilborn because they all got the same... You know that meme of the bloke shouting in the girls' ear in the nightclub? (laughs) (laughs) But with them over the breakfast table this morning, effectively. Uh, And my only other issue is, next up, it was stuff about the pinnacle in the inner circle. And there's so many bloody stables, I can't keep up. Uh, No, (laughs) Pinnacle was interviewed uh, regarding the stipulations that MJF laid out uh, last week to to earn himself a match against MJF. And and, and Jericho has said, well, yeah, but MJF, have you read all of Greek mythology? Because... You know that when Hercules succeeded, you're giving me these Herculean tasks. You know what? Then Hercules succeeded. He gets everything he wanted. I will walk through fire. I'll run across broken glass to get to you, MJF. I'm the god of thunder, the god of war in AEW. And just as he's peeking, he gets hit in the throat with a chair because Sean Spears attacks him, of course. MJF comes in and says, all right, mate. Yeah, just to let you know, here's your first labour. It's going to be next week. It's going to be you versus this guy. He's Sean Spears. And guess what? Not only is it you versus him, the stipulation is he can use a chair, but you can't. And once more, Spears twats Jericho in the injured, well, back and in the injured arm uh, as they as they walk off. Michael Hamlet, what do you think? We know the first labour of Jericho. Yeah, so, right. So what I liked about this was the action itself. I thought the, um, the chair shot, particularly the second one on the arm and how just vindictive and mean and cruel MJF looked in that moment was great. Like finally an isolated Jericho away from the inner circle, all that kind of stuff like the action, and I really like how they're going to tease out these matches one at a time. So Jericho has no knowledge of what's coming next until he's gotten over the first one, and he's always going to be in a um, like a disadvantaged position. Mm. So this is setting us up for a series of matches where the stipulations are going to be against him, or he's just going to have a numerical disadvantage or whatever it is. Like you are saying from step one, exactly as it should, it's in character. MJF's a piece of garbage. It's going to be like... Awful, awful, awful along the way. And this is only step one, Jericho, you know? Like, so I did really like that. Um, 
I think this maybe fell victim to a slight formatting error. Following the last segment, like all of a sudden, this felt a bit like fake and carny and pro wrestling. Like the inner circle and the pinnacle wants to preserve of blood and guts was a bit like, eh, like run of the mill, decent angle stuff versus best thing in the industry. One of the best things ever. Like those two things should have been next to each other. And it's normally something AEW gets right. It's normally something that they're like, they're keen to separate from. Like even when on shows where there's too many run-ins, at least it's not like one match after another match after another match. So I really thought this was placed mm. at the wrong point. And I didn't like the, I, I guess blocking would be the term. I mentioned this to Cedric this morning. Like, my the immersion was broken for me by how they wanted to shoot this because surely like Chris Jericho would have seen Sean Spears running at him from across the room, <laughs> steel chair in hand, and maybe done something about it. Like it wasn't like an ambush from behind because they wanted the, the chair of the throat deal. So I didn't think that was super effective. And maybe that's tied into my prior point, like Jericho talking about all oh, like the like again, you've got this such real feeling stuff like. I don't think you've got the confidence and are fully on top of your mental health issues to challenge me in a wrestling match versus let's talk about the trials of Hercules because MGF, let me tell you, in this, if we were in a pub car park, I too would know a little bit about Greek mythology. Like it just, like the two things didn't stack up and it's not fair to compare because one's on another level and that's a formatting fault of this show because fundamentally this is fine, but it felt a bit more superfluous this week. Speaking of not fair to compare, Sige, is this going to live up to Drew McIntyre versus Dolph Ziggler? Those are big shoes. <laughs> they are very big shoes to fill. Shit, One of the reasons, Hamford, why it's not fair to compare is that these storylines, one is in the very embryonic stage of it. The other is heating up big. Yeah. So I don't necessarily disagree that that was a format and error. One possibly shouldn't have followed the other, but one's in its embryonic stage. And the good part of that is... I can't pretend to be doing cartwheels over Spears versus Jericho. I think all of it's wonderfully in character. What you've done is you've got MGF being the dickhead that he is, spotting a really fiendish and clever way to just cut Jericho off the past. Doesn't even make his first labor. He's got a mate who's a violent psychopath. Whether he plays that role wonderfully or not, in MGF's head, he obviously does, is his stable mate. He's got fiendishly difficult stipulation. And ultimately, as much as I say, you know what, Spears versus Jericho, it's not going to be the best of the labours. It's not going to be the best of the matches. Sean Spears is going to do the rock spot and it's going to be awesome. Hit Jericho full force of the chair. Jericho ducks, hits the rope, bang, straight in his face. Lion salt. Like they have to do the rock spot. Mm. Like they've been watching a lot of the rock for this inner circle versus um, pinnacle feud. So they'll have to do that. They'll absolutely have to do that. It's the good thing about long-term storytelling is that the second chapter is better than the first, the third's better than the second, the fourth's better than the third. So they've clearly positioned Spears as the first labor, knowing that, yeah, you might get some nice spots out of it. There's going to be way better to come. And that was followed by Christian Cage versus Matt Hardy. Uh, rather than, than, than commentary notices, rather than them coming to blows, considering the, the animosity between these two, the first, like, what, 60 seconds of this was just them in a lock of Coron Elbow. Just, just, they go through the ropes. They just won't let go because it's, 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 you know, marking their territory effectively. Yes, I want to batter the crap out of you, but I'm also just reminding you that I'm a better wrestler than you are effectively. Um, as they get back into the ring after fighting around at ringside, Christian tax Hardy sends him into the barricade and then goes in the rope, 
inside the ring, up onto the turnbuckle, hits like a huge, I don't know, double axe handle or something off the top of that. Uh, wonderfully shot as well with the crowd in the background. Credit to the uh, production team for that, because I'm going to slag them off in a bit. So I'm going to balance that out. Um, Cardi later on catches Christian uh, between the ropes, hits a draping DDT on the steel steps, and he uh, sends Christian throat first into the ropes and gets a two count off an elbow drop for a uh, for, uh, for yeah for a near fall as we head into the commercials. Hardy goes for a twist of fate. Christian fights out, hits a spear, gets a near fall, hits a neck breaker, frog splash, another near fall. Uh, Christian looks like he's got the match one, gets him in position for the kill switch or at least battling for it. But Hardy takes the referee, brings him in close and uh, mule kicks effectively uh, Christian in the bollocks. Nice low blow. Twist of fate for a near fall. Uh, they go to the floor and Hardy locks in the submission. That I think it's called the leech. Uh, it looks like he's just put Christian down. He's never going to answer a 10 count and he just makes it back into the ring um, at the nine point. And Christian counters this twist of fate, kill switch, and he finally, finally defeats Matt Hardy. Post-match, they weren't at ringside to Matt Hardy's credit. Out comes the HFO private party. Uh, and uh, well, I think it was only one of TH. I didn't see uh, Jack Evans, but... Um, Regardless, they all pile out there. It looks like they're going to jump Christian and uh, outcome Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus to make the save. And there's a nice little moment, uh, Sidge, with the little look between Christian and Jungle Boy as uh, Christian is raised on Luchasaurus's shoulders. You weren't that arsed, I think it's fair to say, Sidge, about this match. I think this was the best it could be. What did you make of it? Literally exactly what I wrote in my article. <laughs> Sorry, Mark Hardy, because this is really good and not in a... I admire the work from a distance. This is actually like a really, really well done pro wrestling match without being blow away exciting, without like eliciting loads of adrenaline. This is really well done. And the crowd really appreciated it as well. And, you know, the last time Matt Hardy had a major singles match on Dynamite, he also did something very good, better against Darby Allen than here. And uh, did you see Matt Hardy's post-show, post-match promo, like a, a social media exclusive? No. Great, legitimately great. Before I talk about the match, does this thing where he's with Private Party <laughs> and he's talking about how the very real thing that's happened in his life is he's just had his fourth child, mm. his fourth child, um, a young daughter. Congratulations to Hardy and all of the Hardy family. And he starts doing the heel things. I didn't really lose. And he starts like dropping off and like falling asleep. And like Private Party, you're waking up. He's like, oh, God, I've been sleep deprived. <laughs> so he's cutting the rest of this promo he starts like dropping off to fall asleep like Jesus Christ they should have put this on Dynamite they honestly should have put this on Dynamite they should have done this immediately after like backstage it would have like a nice funny moment that would have endeared people to Matt Hardy because that's one of the best things he's done AEW this promo it was piss funny as for the match like this is two guys who are veterans and all of the really detached praise oh yeah they're not build a match but they did and it was enjoyable. This story was, they've got two really cunning guys. One of them is using his experience and how intelligent he is as a pro wrestler, strategically, using every bit of the ring that he's mastered to hurt Matt Hardy, whether it's slipping under it and crotching him on the ropes or whatever, where Christian Cage used the ropes to do all this. Matt Hardy was using the stairs to be a dick. Like, he was using, like, his dark arts, like, all of these nasty, corny tricks that he's learned over the years and years. And the finish... Paid off that storyline because in one last bit of cunning, Christian Cage sells, air quotes, almost being counted out. And then 
when he does the kill switch for the finish, you're thinking, oh, you probably weren't that knackered on the outside. He's really clever at this. I genuinely thought this was very, very good. Yeah, like another tremendous um, just experience, a fan experience. The live crowd are banging into it. The commentary team dropped in like a really useful statistic about how he'd never beaten him before. Mm. Um, you know that these two have fought all the time, but in singles competition, you're able to make something a little bit more unique out of it than just knowing all the tag matches that they've had. Um, I, who the hell am I? Some old dweeb on the internet that say, oh, bless Matt Hardy and Christian with about 50 years experience between them assembling a great television match. Like, but that's what they did. Bless them. Like they still had it in them. This was just really, really enjoyable. The, um, I like the, the stuff that Christian did that I, not isn't so much out of his wheelhouse, but again, like just showing this, it's, it's all to inform the outwork everyone bit. He can drop little bits like working around the ring posts into his matches that are not there every time as and when he needs them to satisfy the entire premise of why he's in AEW. And I think that's such an inspired choice because he's done it in every match so far. There's been something unique and different about virtually every single match he's had. And it's not particularly tailored to the opponent. It's just sort of rounding out who he is as a pro wrestler, right up to the finish. Love the finish. What a really cool, creative finish. Looks like he's down and it's not an unconvincing, oh, he's just crawling, it's nine. It's that he was resting and fooling Matt Hardy into thinking he was beat. Like the way that he rushed and the body language and the immediate counter was to let you know that Christian was fine at two, at three, but he's wily as a baby face, sneaky as a heel. So you play one skill to mean one thing when you're a good guy and the other when you're a bad guy. And we know that Christian is going to be a bad guy because we got that nice teased wrestling descent, a little bit of jealousy from Jungle Boy, which is also ideal because... You don't want it to be this open and shut thing where the Jurassic Express can't see that there's a snake in the mist now. You know, you almost want it to be that there's a bit of awkwardness and a bit of push and pull and tension before the inevitable turn and the awesome singles match. Let's do some trio stuff first. Great, great. If our analysis of that finish reads as generous, it isn't. On the road to Dynamite, Christian Cage out loud said, I've always been a dick. Look at me, I'm always being a dick. The difference is like, blah, blah, blah. So he knows he was being a dick with that one. He does. Mm. Really, also, really good. Also, I do want to give credit. Maybe I didn't, maybe he's used this more on Dark and I've just not seen it. Love the name The Leech for his submission. Just worked yeah. perfectly for Matt Hardy in amongst all this. Uh, right, let's go to our guy who does the usual gear stuff. God, that sounds like a real accusation. I mean, when people change their gear, to talk about Miro changing the belt, he tells a story about being insecure and then a voice calling out to tell him to return to who he was, destroying everyone in his path, God's favourite champion, all that. Uh, he got the TNT Championship as his reward. Uh, he's not just willing to defend his championship with his life, he's willing to defend it with yours. He calls himself the Redeemer and he shows off, Michael Hamlet, this new new white strapped with green bits on it tnt championship what did you think of it right well this belt is beautiful let's just say that like off the top it's an absolutely beautiful title belt um me and Cedric were talking in the office about how kind of now they've established a bit of a rule i guess that uh tnt champions can customize their own belts uh it's a smart pro wrestling trick to play the replica sales are going to go through the roof for all the different ones. The toys are going to have to be made with new belts every time. It's really smart, but it's a nice character thing. People are going to want to see whoever Miro loses to get their own belt. And then they're going to want to see the next person get their own belt. And that's just cool. Belt stuff is cool. That's what they're all fighting for in the first place. So it's nice when they get involved in the belts. But I've got to throw 
to a thread that I'd love people to read um, after they finish listening to this podcast, if they haven't already seen it already, that I spotted on Twitter by at Maggie underscore IK. She is Bulgarian and she explains in a load of really interesting tweets all the various little Bulgarian details that are on this belt, as you can see, the white, the green and the red. Mm -hmm. Specifically one that I just want to highlight, though there are loads more to see. Those side plates are the crests of Plovdiv where Miro and indeed this lady Maggie are both from. So she talks about how awesome it is that like this, this these plates to represent the homeland, but it's indeed Miro's homeland as well. It's as personalized as absolutely every other aspect of this belt. The coat of arms reads, and you can see it in the, um, I guess like the Bulgarian script, I would assume, reads as ancient and eternal. This is God's champion. This is the redeemer. This is his world and we're just all living in it now. Andrade will be fine because Look at Miro, for Christ's sake. Like, playing games with Kip Sabian 12 months ago. Look at him now. He is. Have you ever seen... I'm not sure if you've seen the uh, the Key and Peele ske sketch where they're doing, like, a back and forth between U two UFC fighters, and they're like, oh, this Sunday, I'm going to kick your head in or whatever. And the other one's like, I have to kill you because God has told me to. And he, the other guy's like, he, he knows we're playing, right? He knows we're just, like, selling the fight <laughs> or something. I am terrified of Miro. He's class. My service level analysis was region specific, white and green. I've actually made a mug off by that great analysis from um, my Twitter user there. But yes, it's great. I love the fact that every single TNT champion has had a different design. Yeah. Cody had the unvarnished, unfinished one, which is so wonderful because the design wasn't fully formed and neither was the identity of the title. Uh, one of my favorite things. And it got smashed in a bag and wrapped around his head. Got smashed in a bag and wrapped around his head. Because <laughs> Mr. Brody Lee, this like wealth-driven, it's my time to get all the money from this goddamn industry because look at me, decided to make it, decided to target that belt the second it was redesigned and became beautiful. Wonderful character touch again. Obviously, the absolute tragedy um, of his death meant that, you know what, we'll give the ultimate keepsake uh, to his grieving son. Um, so they redesigned it on that basis and gave Dolby Allen a new one. Obviously, Miro's got his new one. They should do this with every single champion. Not only is it a merch sensation and like all a collector thing, as Hamza pointed out, but also we are going to go way over on this podcast, so we'll have to be very, very quick. You can illustrate to your audience just how distinct and vibrant these characters are by doing it every single time. MGF, if he ever wins a TNT title, could have a Burberry strap. Oh. Orange Cassidy, because he's a bit careless and doesn't care, could have like the the front plate upside down. <laughs> like, just, there's loads of stuff they could do. Well, I, I, I was just, just waiting, waiting for you to finish so I could say, so Max Cast can bring back a spinner belt. Good. Good. I'm glad we talked that one out. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about Britt Baker, Sidge. Uh, she had a promo. Lovely moment. Lovely hug in front of fans. I think I saw this being shared on Twitter uh, with Tony Schiavone in the centre of the ring. Uh, and he is concerned, along with everyone else, about her well-being, talking about being put through the table by Nyla Rose a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she says, don't worry about it. I've dealt with a lot, and I'm still the baddest bitch on the block. Um, what's really hard, though, is trying to keep Nyla Rose actually relevant. Yes, she's beaten me, but I'm in a league of my own. So, you know, come on, keep, try and keep up sort of thing. They cut backstage um, uh, after Britt Baker's buried Nyla Rose and uh, they show uh, Vicky, uh, Vicky Guerrero and Nyla Rose and uh, Baker says, look, you've got a last name that will keep you relevant regardless of what happens in wrestling. But Rose, unfortunately, you don't. Um, 
with the championship, I'm the hottest promo in professional wrestling, but even without it, I'm still DMD. Uh, Vicky Guerrero is furious. She shouts down the lens about Nyla Rose battering her next week. And uh, yeah, Rose backs that up by saying she's going to hand Baker the ass whooping of a lifetime. Let's get things back on track for usage. Yes, absolutely, because Dr. Britt Baker is great. And Nyla Rose's threat at the end was great as well. We say this time and time and time and time and time and time again. There are two things you do in a classic pro wrestling promo. You insult the person you're about to have a fight with, but you put them over because you want people to see the fight and you want to depict them as worthy. Barry's neither rules. In doing so, puts herself over, but reminds you that she's beat me a couple of times mm-hmm. and she just beat me in the Eliminator tournament. So she's tacitly saying she's good and she can, in fact, beat me potentially, while at the same time insulting her to create like a sense of animosity and heat. It's and she did it in her own unmistakable way, drenched in confidence. This is great, badly needed as well. Yeah, a, a money promo, like a fight selling promo, and um, working with that level of confidence that I just think is tremendous that you can like prep that DMD catchphrase, knowing that the whole crowd is going to chat it in unison must be a wonderful feeling for a pro wrestler because you just know that you're, you're like all the way over and people stay over forever. Britt Baker is, if she wants to, if like she just doesn't decide to retire early and just be a full-time dentist, is going to be saying, is going to be like popping crowds with DMD when she's in her 60s because this is now just going to be something that sticks and it's just awesome to watch that happening and developing. Um like the dig at Vicky Guerrero was quite nice and felt like pretty cathartic as well. Cause I think with the, like the failings of the Andrade character and the, the kind of the failings of this storyline, Vicky Guerrero has not really felt like a very popular and f- well-fitted figure on Dynamite lately. So I think that was like quite a, like a nice target to solve for that live crowd. There was a point with Tony Schiavone that I just want to mention a little bit later on when we get to QT Marshall, just with a, a weird theory I've got. Um, and yeah, like I'm, this story's been rubbish and I'm into the match. That's the mark of a successful promo. Uh, then was when we got the, the Moxley response to Lance Archer. And then we got Sammy Guevara versus Wheeler Utah. Um, again, incredible reaction for Sammy Guevara. Uh, only amplified by the point where he faked a dive and did his, his little pose in the ring as, as, as you is on the outside. Uh, Guevara misses two moonsaults, but then hits a running shooting star press and uh, goes up top. Goes for a shooting star press, but Yuta gets the knees up. Follows that up with a diving splash, but Guevara kicks out at one to a, a bam. Uh, back and forth, back and forth. Corner spear from Guevara. Gamanguri, uh, spring, double springboard cutter. Uh, and then the GTH for a relatively straightforward victory, Hamlet. It's brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. What a fantastic use of about four minutes of television this was. Um, make Sammy Guevara look completely dominant in victory which gets you through the fact that he's lost the big match to MJF. And if he is going to be doing inner circle pinnacle stuff, it's going to be fringe stuff compared to the the main player storyline while still maintaining this main event aura because he's got this like amazing backing of the crowd. If Blood and Guts and um, Stadium Stampede weren't as overt in presenting Sammy Guevara as a top singles babyface, it was only because he was part of a group, not because he wasn't doing the work to prove himself. This was a lovely follow-on from that. Um, he was still a complete arsehole, but it's great when an arsehole turns babyface because then they are arsehole. It's like 
I used to have this with the likes of Robbie Savage and El Hadjif if they were playing for your team. You'd kind of like that, whereas you just loathe them if you if you're playing against them. Sammy Guevara. Savage played for Malcolm's. No, he didn't. Juve did. But like oh, Robbie Savage, it's just another one that I think of where like Savage is like, I had a mate that was a Derby fan. And I was like, oh, that looks actually pretty good having this dickhead on your side. Like Sammy Guevara is that now. Like, so like all this flash and all this arrogance is for you. So great. You've got somebody flashing and arrogant fighting for you. That's going to be awesome. Um, really, really great. And Sammy, Sammy Guevara's development has probably been underrated because I'm not so sure that like, the guy wearing the panda hat could have done as most with so few minutes a yeah. couple of years ago. And I think that speaks to like AEW's like very careful development of these prodigious young talents. This was just a tap-in. And why don't you do tap-ins? What you do is you convince the local audience, where your friends, where the babyface company, here's a guy you really like. In essentially a non-canon match, if you like, it had no storyline implications. It's just a treat for you. Here's your guy. He has four minutes of him doing his wonderful, athletic, like really technically capable stuff. And at the same time, by doing this on television, the television audience watches it and infers that, Jesus Christ, this guy's a major star. And it takes four minutes. Mm. Just, it's insane that you praise it almost. But you have to because the other company doesn't do it because Vince McMahon's got super brains. Yeah. Wheeler Yu wins this match in, in WWE. <laughs> Um, you said something about QT Marshall. This is where we had uh, him getting interviewed by Tony Schiavone. He's furious at the way so Tony Schiavone arrogantly, you know, sort of rubbed in his face the, the loss of the South Beast strap match. And he just pours a, pours a protein shake over Tony's head. What, what were you thinking with this? Well, it's just a theory, really, because I didn't like it otherwise. I was like, the thing about like AW when they book obviously conclusive endings, which are great and it's what we want. Like a character like QT Marshall feels like, and the factory to a lesser extent as well kind of felt like they were only existing for the benefit of a Cody feud. And that's all right, because there's dark and there's dark elevation and there seems to be a rampage and you, you figure out where people stand on the pecking order. But I, like he appeared on screen, I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, this guy again. Like, I really thought we were done with him for a little while. I don't mean to be cruel to QT Marshall, but we talk about this all the time. There's people you would rather the time be allocated to. And it didn't feel like he was worthy. Nothing he had to say felt like worthy of the time that the whole promo was feeling like, right, this is an excellent show, but it's not a perfect one because why are we wasting our time with QT Marshall talking to Tony Schiavone? And then he tips a drink on his head, like a real piece of shit because Tony Schiavone's beloved. And I just wondered because we'd seen the hug between Britt Baker and Tony Schiavone, I just started like mapping out, could Britt Baker's more overt babyface turn come in the form of the factory having a female trainee lined up when she goes to give, like, she goes to, like, batter Cutie Marshall for tipping a drink on her mate because this is the one place where she'll be an earnest face is with Tony Schiavone now. She hugs him on camera. She did it when she won the belt. It's the one way that she'll, like, drop the heel facade and just be a, a little bit nice because it's Tony. And she goes and has a word with Cutie and then they set somebody on her that either we don't know about or somebody that we've seen that has since come into the fold of the factory because it was the only way that I could think to make any of this interesting Otherwise, I just don't want to see them on Dynamite. They just don't feel like a pressing concern. Now, Cody's beating them. We're done. QT helps map out the show. So I think you wanted to be on it. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Here's> my take. <laughs> I, want, I want to be on it. It's like millions of dollars spent on two hours of valuable teams. I want to go. <laughs> I mean, I like them well enough, but on a show this hot, you think they're going to have to do something really good with QT Marshall to get me invested on like fans dynamite, you know, mm. um, we'll see. Mm. 
Right, next up, Michael Sidgwick, it's Yuka Sakazaki. She's back against Penelope Ford. And oh, it was great to see her again, uh, especially when she's early on in the match on the top rope and cartwheels off it to uh, to dodge an attack from Penelope Ford. Drop kicks Ford, sends her out to the floor and then hits a cannonball dive um, onto the outside. Mad stuff. Also a great spot where... She just has to power up Penelope Ford, get her up there for a suplex, really just showcased the fact that she looks, you know, tiny in comparison to the other people you see in this ring, but she's still got incredible strength, quite clearly. Uh, Ford, though, later on fights out of another suplex, two pump kicks for a near fall. Uh, but in the end, Sakazaki comes back, magical merry-go-round, magical girl splash. One, two, three. You must have loved seeing this, Sige. Yeah, I mean, she's just the most adorable, enchanting, like ridiculous character to exist in the pro wrestling context the juxtaposition that is her size her demeanor versus what she can do it's just absolutely unbelievable like what a personality she is and she busted out something phoenix adjacent so i was like f me gently with a chainsaw because that was absolutely unbelievable <laughs> the match had sloppy moments but the cartwheel's so great she got, like such an impish charm um and penelope ford it yeah. was a decent effort. I couldn't rank it anything higher than a decent effort. But if you noticed Penelope Ford's face, she's so expressive. When you can say it's like you made her entrance and she's like, it's the cute kawaii thing and everyone's in love with her. Like Penelope Ford just does the, like a almost Britt Baker level. <laughs> like, <laughs> like she's can't be asked for the fact that like she's not the center of attention. Like Penelope Ford deserves as I mentioned in the article. By the way, I did ups and downs uh, this week. You can access it at whatculture.com slash WWE. And yeah, she needs, if not a big spot, she desperately needs or deserves the reps to deserve one because she's just so talented. But a showcase for you exactly, exactly that hopefully informs Baker versus Sakazaki too. Roman numerals, that's how important it is to me. I need the, I need the Romans for that. <laughs> I um, just don't want to stop saying this. I don't, like, I don't really have much to add on the match particularly, but um, I want to feel like this for as long as possible in this post-pandemic era. Aren't pops great? <laughs> like, Yuka Zakazaki got a monster pop. She's not been on television for ages, but this audience is educated, this audience cares, and this audience remembers. And just massive pops are class. And like, long may they continue for months and months and months and months and months before novelties wear off or before, like... AW don't sort of aren't able to quite manufacture them like they will do hopefully for ages because they're just so fulfilling it's so much of why you watch and it's not like you know it felt almost like too obvious to say it in the the depths of the pandemic but like now it feels joyous to almost like toast it it's just Mm. brilliant people are just thrilled to stike to see somebody that they paid to watch that's how all of this should be and how it should all feel is brilliant yeah it's the thing of Oh, I can enjoy pops again now because when we go back and we'd watch some of our favorite wrestling clips, it just made me even sadder in the depths of I don't know May 2020 or something like that. Uh, off the back of this, they uh, they preview what we got to come next Wednesday. Oh, it's thick and fast here in AEW. Uh, two title matches: uh, AEW Women's Championship, of course, Britt Baker versus Nyla Rose in the US Championship, the IWGP US Championship. John Moxley defending in that Texas Death Match against Lance Archer. Also, Chris Jericho versus Sean Spears when one. One can use the chair and the other can't. And Orange Cassidy versus the Blade. And then there was an advert for AEW Rampage, which is just over or just under, about a month away, basically. And then it was time for the main event. First out was the coffin, because it's a coffin match. It's Darby Allen versus Ethan Page. 
Uh, Ethan Page makes his entrance just unbearable in the best possible way. And they just didn't run over the fact that, he, yeah, we put him in the coffin, close the coffin lid, job done. Darby Allen comes out and Ethan Page is, you know, waiting for him in the ring. Darby Allen doesn't waste any time. He immediately jumps Ethan Page, jumps into Ethan Page, I should say, as well, and takes off his jacket to reveal a Bret Hart-esque steel plate, but this time on his back. Ethan Page goes to the outside and gets hit with, immediately, yeah, a coffin drop uh, and uh, and a, a dive through the ropes in amongst all this. Darby Allen goes over to the coffin. We got this slightly wrong. We were sort of right, but slightly wrong uh, because he opens the coffin and Scorpio Skies went in there. He attacks him, <laughs> batters him, uh, but Sting comes out to make the save again. Huge bat for all that. And they, uh, they're they fighting each other. The uh, the annoying bit here is Sting sets up for a Sting splash. And I realised that they want to establish the fact that Ethan Page has been taken off the bottom rope, unscrewing it or however you describe it. Just don't cut right in the middle of a Stinger splash. Just a thought, uh, AW production. Aside from that, though, I'm, I'm, I'm nitpicking here because uh, a great spot with... Uh, Scorpio Sky in control, stood on the barricade going, look at all you knobheads cheering for this old, old bollocks. And he, he crotches himself uh, on the uh, on the railing or the edge of the I don't know, hockey rink or whatever you want to call it. Um, Sting twatting with a trash can. They, you know, fight off for there. And uh, we, we went into a break. And, and as we come back, we, we're reminded, yes, that Ethan Page has taken away the bottom rope effectively. Uh, and the, the hook that, not Taz's, the hook that uh, attaches the bottom rope to the the other bits, I, I've never built a ro- uh, ring in my life. I just sort of pretended to look busy when I did stuff in WCPW, if I'm honest. Anyway, that, uh, <laughs> hooks that around uh, Darby <laughs> Allen's necklace and chokes him out with it. But then Darby Allen comes back and fish hooks Paige with it in his mouth, uh, drop kicks Paige into the coffin. They both stood in the coffin, just fighting each other. Uh, Paige is just slapping the taste and, and almost KOing Darby Allen amongst all this. And he's pointing at Darby Allen in the face. So Darby Allen bites his hand because, of course, he does. Uh, Paige has got busted open. I think it, uh, I think Darby Allen had hit him with the the turnbuckle thing and just busted him open basically it wasn't too bad certainly in the, the grand scheme of things that we've seen recently um so page goes to throw darby allen off the steps that are now in the middle of the ring but all allen fights out reverses that into a stunner he goes for a coffin drop but this time uh, ethan page catches him and in in a thing that i went Hey, look, you seen this? The missus woke up this morning to me just going, look at this. And she just went, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, a, a, a an avalanche ego's edge off the top rope onto the stairs. Not a lot of giving those stairs, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, so uh, Paige takes him to, to hit him on a, with a suplex on the apron. But a bit like we saw a couple of weeks ago when Paige flipped out and cancelled the match, Darby Allen starts gouging his eyes out, biting him. He's scratching, he's clawing quite literally to try and stay in this match. Uh, and then Darby Allen gets his skateboard uh, and hits a skateboard-assisted stomp onto Page to knock him into the coffin, closes the coffin. The match is over. I guess that's that. No, Darby Allen is bloody bonkers because he climbs up to the top rope and you, uh, we think, I know we booked it in our preview. You don't have to do it. We don't actually... No. He hit an insane coffin drop onto a coffin that contained Ethan Page inside. The top explodes. You'll have seen the gift absolutely everywhere. It was mad, but it was a spectacular end to a brilliant dynamite, Michael Sidgwick. 
Yeah, this is class. This is class. It was an avalanche eagle's edge onto the steel steps. I mean, that's insane. But it's not getting thrown down the stairs insane. This is less, and for the betterment of the match and my enjoyment of it, this is less absolutely, absolutely terrifying than I thought it was going to be. But this was the anti-casket match. Casket matches are defined by how boring they are. The purpose is to roll an object into another object. It's essentially like moving house, except you're watching for it on pay-per-view and even worse, The Undertaker's in it. (laughs) There's not a single second other than the Stinger Splash that they wasted or missed to just deliver this absolutely deliriously entertaining, like oscillating match. You got the explosion of Sting running through his ageless routine and he immediately contrasts with Darby Allen jumping off the balcony but getting caught. It's just... I'll never in my life be other than this moment. Use the term roller coaster. This was, but this was legitimately <laughs> like boom, 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 like pangs of anxiety on behalf of Darby Allen. Like Sting is doing all this mad stuff. There was some insane spots in this match. There was, but what impressed me most was the, uh, the spot with the hook and the chain. What's happened there is Darby Allen's had a little bit of a cough and he's took a flat back, right? But because everyone's felt something pressed against their neck and everyone can feel in that moment what that spot would feel like, it probably sucks to take, but it's not falling down a flight of stairs. But they give <laughs> you that same visceral uh, feeling by doing something exponentially safer than that, which is a credit to how, pun intended, both men have evolved. <laughs> <laughs> I did it in the article with a semicolon afterwards and I felt like an absolute twat. <laughs> oh, I really, really good fun this. Um I just to sort of like echo Sidric's point there, really, just um fundamentally, casket matches, coffin matches are really stupid. Like the, the very premise of it is daft because the premise of the Undertaker is daft, but it's pro wrestling, so you can kind of allow for it if it's 1993 and you're fighting The Undertaker. That's the only real reason that a coffin or a casket match can still make sense. So tonally, they just nailed this. It was never about the, like, if, full, like, panic of being stuffed in a coffin. It was just an end destination for a massive brawl. That was all it ultimately was. Instead of a pin, it was like, you're going in the box instead of getting pinned after we've near killed each other. Um Darby Allen should have left the back thing on. Shouldn't he should have worked the entire match with it? Surely that's really useful. Um, but I like fun violence. It, it, it was, yeah, it was fun. It, it's bizarre that like something as potentially gross as the fish hooking could feel more, I don't know, wacky mm. than pins in the mouth from last week or the Britain Thunder Rosa stuff or well, a lot of examples because AW indulges. But like, yeah, this was. This was everything it needed to be. And that's two weeks in a row now. And I'm not advocating for um, like plunder hardcore every week to be the main event of Dynamite. But there is something about your big stipulation match being the the hot finish to a Dynamite, making these like first shows with crowds back feel like pay-per-views. Like fighter, it's, it's a name. They're not doing much with the sets. They're building big cards, but it's just a name, isn't it? But like the way these shows are ending it does make you feel like you've just sat through a pay-per-view and you've got this like grand euphoric conclusion. And I think they'd be like, like I think Britt Baker and Nyla Rose should maybe headline next week, but this makes me think they'll go with 
Jericho beating Sean Spears for the big Judas sing-along after Sean Spears has clocked himself and blooded himself with a chair or something, because it does feel like they're, they're aiming for these big pay-per-view conclusions. Mm. Um, it's effective. It is, it is effective in a TV model. I'll give them that. Yeah, just bonkers, this. I, I think the only thing you can take away from it now, like you've just said with the casket match comparison is, I think I want AEW to do a flag match, which I've never because <laughs> they could somehow... Somehow, they'd, they'd probably maybe make it work. But uh, we've talked very long about this, but I believe this show merited it. So, uh, nevertheless, we'd love to know your thoughts on AEW Fighter Fest Night 1. Let us know them on Twitter, at WhatCultureWWE. Watch so you can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamflit at... Michael Hamflit. Follow Michael Sidgwick at... M. Sidgwick. Follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at What Culture WW and make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts. We'll no doubt be chatting more about AEW over this weekend with myself and Michael Sidgwick. And of course, we've got uh, previews and reviews of all the stuff to come with AEW Fire Fest Night 2 and Fight for the Fallen. And of course, WWE Money in the Bank this weekend as well. But for now, this has been the AEW Dynamite Fighter Fest Night 1 review. My thanks to the Dadly Boys. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.